Hey there, Cracked fan. Hey there, neat person. Squarespace knows you have something to say. You have something to show. You have something to sell. You have something that deserves its own website. So make it a reality with Squarespace. They have 24-7 award-winning customer support to help you as you make a website from a world-class designer's beautiful template that you will make custom and make your own. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. So what are you waiting for? Head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also struggling with the Kanye apocalypse just as much as you. I mean, uh, maybe you don't care about Kanye West, but he's reinserted himself into national politics. So he's a story. He's also made his debut as a historian by going on Twitter and circulating false Harriet Tubman quotes. Uh, So not great. But I uh, bring up the pain of Kanye falling apart to bring up a positive thing you can do in the wake of maybe deciding he's not the artist for you anymore. Our guest today is Jensen Karp. We will footnote an excellent Twitter thread he started, which is just exciting young rappers that Jensen likes and thinks you might like too. So if you're feeling bereft uh, now that Kanye is not only somebody who thinks Bill Cosby is innocent, but also uh, doing some other stuff I don't like, listen to a new artist. Check that out. And we are very, very, very lucky to have Jensen on today's show for all kinds of reasons. He's very funny. He's very fun. And he's a unique person in culture. I don't think there is anybody else like him. You, you may know him from his rap career. And when I say he had a rap career, I don't just mean he like tried it or something. He grew up in the LA area. He succeeded as an underground West Coast battle rapper and then got a million dollar record deal from Interscope Records, uh, all under his rap moniker of Hot Carl. That's right, Hot Carl. And as we'll discuss on the show, Jensen crossed paths with everybody. You don't just go to a party in New York at Rockefeller Records as the plus one of Kanye West in the early 2000s without having a sense of where culture is going. Jensen Karp has that sense. Jensen Karp did all that, and we'll talk about it. He's also a rap guru, a TV producer, a memoirist, a comedy writer, and a podcaster. I discovered him on his Earwolf show, Get Up On This, and the title is what it does. It gets you up on the latest culture, and they have a really good time doing it. All that makes Jensen the perfect guest for today's topic, which is overlooked artists who deserve to be pop culture icons. Also, Jensen's a great guest in general, and he's accidentally my Kanye West grief counselor. Uh, That last thing's a tiny part of the show. It's really about cool people, and we're going to get into it. Please sit back or sit in total vigilance of all your artistic heroes. Nah, that's tough. Do your thing. Either way, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with my guest Jensen Karp. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Thank you for taking the time to come on. Thanks for asking. And of course, congrats about your recently engaged. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. It's very, it's uh, people always like, or do you feel any different? Like that's like a thing people ask about marriage or engagement or whatever. Yeah. And like people always go, nah, it's like, you know, we live together already. No, I feel like totally different. (laughs) I do. I feel different. I feel like there's like a thing we're going towards and then hopefully a family. And I mean, it does feel different. You know, 10 days ago, you know, I was still dating her for over a year or whatever. Uh, But it's still, you know, it's new and cool. 
wow. Yeah. So like like the moment like it's like yes, and yeah. then like there's a different filter over the world. Well, yeah, because like, like most of my relationships, my entire life have been very immature. Like not in a oh, bad way, yeah, but just yeah. like I'm like a kind of a man boy. I have like two arcade games in my house, and like now Ooh. I'm I see it as like a more it's like a maturity. I'm 38, but yet I I feel like probably younger in relationships than most people. And this has felt really adult and real and good. In addition to that, you're producing a TV show, Drop the Mic on TBS. That's right, Sunday nights at 10.30. Mm -hmm. Sunday nights at 10.30. Yeah. And then also you've done so many other things. There's an interview you do in GQ where you describe yourself as a hip-hop zealot. Yeah, to an uh, extent. You've, among many, many, many things, you got to know Kanye West when he was very, very early in his career. Yeah, that was... uh... It's it's obviously very timely right now, but I really yeah. enjoyed Kanye. He was a good guy, and we hung out, and he was very cool. And I, I was just before I came up here, I was watching the interview he did with Charlemagne, and it's like a different person. It's like not even it's like legitimately right. a different human being. So I don't know anything about the guy now, but I know when we were coming up, and I was nineteen or twenty, and he was like twenty four, twenty five. I mean, we were, we had a really good time, and uh, it's just a bummer to see him sort of like this. But it's been it's felt that way for a long time. Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. It's not yeah. a new feeling. I just now he's a Republican, <laughs> which makes it even harder to love him. Uh, but yeah, I think also the music hasn't really been there necessarily for the last year or so, uh, maybe two years. So I think now people are starting yeah. to question it too. Yeah, around the time he tweeted Bill Cosby, innocent. innocent. That was, was really like, a moment. I mm-hmm. had defended him through so much, and yeah. now I'm just straight up not on board. But you oh, got to walk away. Yeah, gotta walk away. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was a good dude at one point. Well, yeah, because you knew him uh, pre through the wire. This Absolutely, was like yeah. 2001 or two, I think. Yeah, and I'd actually visited him in the hospital during the the accident. No way. Yeah, no, I was I was actually with him earlier that day in the studio when he had left the studio to get in that car crash. I like that was when I was around, and obviously, like uh, for a year or two before, about a year before that as well. And was, like I said, down to earth, always weird, always odd, um, (laughs) always rapping for waitresses and just like a goofy dude, but definitely not like, you know, office rocker. Was he like, was he like rapping for waitresses as a tip? No, but I wish they would walk. (laughs) I mean, he thought it was, they would walk up and and try to take our order. And then he, she would be like, uh, all right, so what do you want? He'd be like, I'm a rapper. And he really wasn't, you know, he was a producer. So it was like, I'm a rapper was like a thing he was sort of jumping out. Was new, to say, yeah. yeah. And she was like, okay, cool. He's like, you want to hear me? She's like, all right. And then he'd be like, yo, I got that ill pancake with that ill. And I was like, and I'm like, what is he doing? And then he'd finish and she'd be like, okay, like, what do you guys want? Like, you know, there was like, no, <laughs> like he didn't have like a real, like it was somewhat autistic to an extent that he didn't understand the social interaction of that. Um, but he was passionate and he was, he was, I didn't really love his rapping then, but you know, his production was so good. Right. He was sort of the golden child. And so, you know, he deserved that kind of confidence with that. But, you know, there's also, you know, sanity that needs to come in with that confidence. <laughs> and that slowly disappeared and the confidence sort of took over or ego. or. I feel like that leads into today's topic a bit of is overlooked artists who deserve to be pop culture icons. Sure. And, of course, your podcast, uh, Get Up On This, mm-hmm. you and uh, your co-host Matthew Robinson are always finding new things that like, oh, this is breaking. This is something that... Not not a lot of people know about yet, but it's going to be huge. Yeah, we've done really um, well. I think we've we've um, been in front of a lot of stuff that's like I, honestly we I, we I don't think we ever thought we'd be that in front of things. I think we we just right. were like if something is cool that week we'll bring it up and talk about it. But I don't think we ever thought we'd fully be like a year ahead of something. Um, and we've been over the last seven years, six years, we've been in front of tons of stuff, and that's been really fun. And then having those people on or uh, so on and so on. Yeah. Uh, it's been it's been a fun time. Are there any like markers someone can look for, like like when an artist is on the way up, like what makes you jump out and say, "Oh, 
Kanye's production is next level. Or uh, yeah, I mean, for know. me, it's like in rap at least because that's where we've done our best. Like we got people up on Chance the Rapper when he was in high school, and and uh, we have Man. had yeah, yeah, we had Casey Veggies on the on the show when he was in high school, and and uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of some of our best ones. But at the end of the day, it's just are they are they good or is it a gimmick? And and sometimes right. we'll have people on that are gimmicks or or bring up people that are gimmicks and we'll address that. But as far as like someone like an action Bronson, who we brought up very early, it's just at the end of the day, he's just a very good rapper. And I think that's kind of what it is still. I think, you know, even though, you know, most rap in 2018 is singing, you know, it's mostly post Malone or whatever, but, um, you know, we had gotten up on post Malone very early as well. And I think it's just about if they can songwrite, if they can, if they can actually sing, I think post is one of those people that as problematic as he is, he still can, he can still write a song. Um, And I think it's just like picking those talented moments as far as like when we pick video games or board games and stuff like that. It's really about what we like. It's, I think we have a very universal taste. Maddie's more of an old man curmudgeon, but uh, (laughs) you know, I think I, you know, we, I rode for Jaden Smith very early and I just, at the end of the day was like, he can rap. That's really what it is. Is, uh, He was a child basically, but I knew, I knew he had the skill to rap and since then has sort of become, become his own. I mean, he's not, he's not the joke he was at one time. And it's those kind of things that I think you just have to stick with what you find talented. And that's what we've done really well on the show. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, uh, why don't we start with rap? Why okay. don't we look at someone? Uh, you brought up somebody who I'd never heard of named Chino XL. Yes, Chino XL, uh, New York guy who it looks like a bodybuilder. He's very buff. Yeah. Wears mostly white, white, te- white uh, wife beaters is a terrible term for them, but white <laughs> tank tops. Yeah. And, I think they're called A shirts. All right, good. I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, and so... Chino's a guy that if you were coming up in the underground of hip hop, which I was, and especially a battle rapper, which I was, Chino spoke to you. He was an amazing lyricist. He was signed to Rick Rubin, which at the time was crazy because Rick had this uh, weird record label that had Milk on it, this other rapper who was in audio too. And <laughs> I think I remember Milk. Milk yeah. is chillin', um, <laughs> top villain. Yeah. That's your Milk. He had a solo career through Rick Rubin. He had Andrew Dice Clay. On the label. Because didn't Dice do comedy and then rap at 1.2 or Well, no? this was his comedy records. The, okay. So Rick Rubin would record and produce sort of his comedy records and do really well, obviously do really well with them because that's what we knew most as kids. Yeah. And Rick would put out a bunch, you know, eventually Johnny Cash and, and some other things on that label, but American Recordings was what it was called. And Chino was really the first pop culture shock rapper, which I know is such a specific genre, but it became what Eminem was, or or when when I rapped my career, that was who I was most influenced by. Wow. And so was M, even though M doesn't want to ever admit that, which is odd. A lot of people that are inside of hip hop are always like, oh, he's kind of just stolen Chino Excel's thing. And when you'd ask Eminem his influences, he would say like Red Man or he would never say Chino, <laughs> which was always weird to me because it's so clear to everyone. And that was one of the things in my career that was a roadblock is that uh, not only did my voice sound like Eminem, but our influence was the exact same. I mean, it's not <laughs> shocking that we we sounded alike because we came up listening to Chino and Red Man and blah, 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 and, and had the same battle background and the same only white guy at a battle. And we, we, we had the same kind of upbringing. Right. But it's always stupid to me that he never admitted that Chino was such an influence and because it would have helped Chino in the long run. And he really is sort of a rapper's rapper. And and he should have been way bigger than he was. He's tr- he tried to act for a second. He ended up in like a Julia Roberts movie or a Drew Barrymore movie. I forget what it was. His, his Wikipedia page is surprisingly heavy on like movie credits. Yeah, he, well, like, he looks, oh, he's, right. like, yeah, he's kind of yeah. like a menacing figure. He looks yeah. kind of like a get shorty bodyguard. Like that would have been a perfect <laughs> role for him. Yeah. You know, he got a little bit of fame because Tupac goes at him on um, Hit Him Up. 
he does he says something oh. about Chino and hit him up just a, a sentence while he's yelling and that's because Chino had a joke about like and by the way I say joke because that's what Chino did Chino was like a, he was like a stand up comedian who was just a very good rapper yeah and he had a joke about like Tupac dropping the soap or something you know very nineties hip hop and uh, <laughs> Tupac took obviously um, some issue with it and that was sort of what got Chino the most publicity but for rappers who love technical and love lyrics. He was someone you'd look up to. And I, I, I ride for him every time anyone asks me what rappers deserve more credit. But he, he was a pioneer in that sort of metaphor hip-hop that we've sort of come to know as Eminem and, and wish Eminem still did. You know, cool. now you don't really love the new Eminem. But this is the old yeah. Eminem, and you'll hear the influence, obviously. Yeah, I feel, I feel like current Eminem, it's more of a thing of like, my God, he's still going? Where, mm-hmm. And before it was like, this is the latest thing we have to hear. Yeah, he was sort of, I mean... He was poised to sort of be a Bob Dylan, you know, when Stan and and uh, the Eight Mile <laughs> yeah. song. And I mean, he was really sort of like he goes up on stage with Elton John and he was sort of in the mood. And then now he I think he just sort of raps. It I just completely really forgot he worked with Elton John. Yeah. Man. Elton John um, supposedly when Eminem was like ODing and stuff, was like having real drug problems. Elton John supposedly flew out to Detroit. And was like one, one of his guys who who like came in to take him to rehab. <laughs> yeah, it's such a weird life. That guy's lived quite a weird life. Yeah, you're man. You've you've gone down a road. If like you're down in the dumps, person to help you is Elton John. Oh like, God. it's not a bad thing. It's no. just like what you just lived. went very far. Yeah. Wow, you've went yeah, very yeah. far. <laughs> it's a little deep. Well, and let's uh, let's hear a little bit of Chino XL because sure. you picked out um, a couple of tracks from his first album in yeah. 1996. Yeah. It's called Here uh, to Save You All. Here to Save You All. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's a yeah. What did I give you? I gave you a... Uh, a freestyle rhyme. Yeah, and... this is freestyle rhyme. Yeah. Walk out my face is your best bet. Your career is George Burns. I can't believe you ain't dead yet. I show my blind rage. The Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles wrestling in a steel cage. Yo, this nigga's crazy. I got an artist losing their limelight like Mike Bibbins. Bitches flipping their wigs. I mean, that's corny now. But you have to remember, it came out the year he, like, OJ killed someone. <laughs> These are just sort of orphaned lyrics, I think. That's why I always like that song, is he just sort of like threw all of his metaphors into one song with no real hook. Uh, but yeah, he, you could tell. It's, it's you know, very metaphor-based, very pop culture-y, very punchline guy. And he was... Um, I mean, to people who don't know rap necessarily very deep, it's it's a name they don't know. But if you're a rap guy, Chino was um, like an unsung hero. He he was just very good, and he was la- he was a Mexican dude, which is rare in hip hop. I think he was half black, yeah. half Mexican. It's a Derek Keith Barbosa. Yeah, Barbosa, and yeah. He, he yeah, that was like a very you know for I mean, still Latin in hip hop is not well uh, represented. But Chino was awesome and, and uh, deserved way more credit. Punchline rap, as you say, or like comedy-based rap, like yeah. that, uh, you can see that clearly in Eminem. You can see that clearly in Kanye West. Ludacris, up, yeah. Like, like, uh, like I, I was one of the only people, I mean, I stand by the idea that there's only there was only handfuls of us that were very deep into hip-hop, where we were, you know, 
buying the Chino Excel record and the Pudgy the Fat Bastard record and these records that like no one knows exist. Th- that was what I was doing, but I was also like heavy into Steve Martin and never missed an SNL and and yeah. and even like the Joe Piscopo Hour uh, special on HBO or I mean like Dennis Miller who's a piece of shit now, but at one time was like a great. He was almost the Chino Excel of comedy really with these sort of pop culture references and jokes. These influences were all very heavy for me and there weren't many people doing the cross section at least sort of in white suburban America. That was where Chino kind of lived, you know, like if you liked SNL, I, you know, and you liked hip hop, there was there was a dude kind of doing that. And 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 in a good way, not in like a two live Jews or whatever, like in a, in a real way. And that was Chino. Yeah, and, and and as early as the mid '90s too. Yeah, like, very early. So... And Rick Rubin obviously was like this postmodern genius in hip hop. What he had done with the Beastie Boys and et cetera. So like he he was a great avenue to try it. And I don't, no one even heard that record, but uh, <laughs> he had a song where he sampled Radiohead, which I think they only got because of Rick Rubin. But he does Creep. That was his Gino single. Does. Yeah, that was his single from the record. He does the hook. He just uses the hook from Radiohead Creep. Uh, and Rick, I mean, that was obviously like a, probably a Rick Rubin idea. Because I listened to the al- a lot of the album as I was just uh, coming over mostly. And it, it really does sound like it's much more recent than it is. Yeah, I think it's, crazy. It's, it's like like when I was first sat down to watch Citizen Kane as yeah. a kid. And I was yeah. like, what? It's like an interestingly edited modern movie. What's yeah. the big deal? It's like, no, it no, borrowed it's because, a lot. Yeah, like, also yeah. because like that's the first time anyone did the things you now know is normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and that he's really, it's really about Eminem more than anyone. Like, yeah. as far as when that sort of took over hip hop, it, it was someone had already done it. And it was, it was Chino. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, while we're while we're on music, let's also look at. Um, this is a person that I found out about because of a cracked article. It's five unknown people who secretly made all your favorite music. Oh yes, and uh, this is a, a person named Esther Dean. Yeah, and Esther Dean is a songwriter who has basically written half of pop music. Is she out of Atlanta? For- I think she was originally out of Omaha, Nebraska. Oh, wow. And then okay. from what I've heard, she came to L.A. from there. But okay. I I don't know the scene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like I – I mean, obviously, I know that she's written everything. Yeah. Because she did try her own solo career for a yeah. minute, and it didn't work. Oh, that's too bad. But then she went back to writing. The producing thing, the writing thing seems to have been lucrative for her. She wrote – not just like songs for people, but like hits. She wrote Super Bass for Nicki Minaj, yeah. Come and Get It for Selena Gomez. Uh, she produced or wrote on eight tracks of Talk That Talk by Rihanna and mm-hmm. a bunch of other songs for her. And then she's in Pitch Perfect, right? Yeah, and then she's Cynthia Rose Adams in Pitch Perfect. Yeah. She's just acting in it. I, I don't think people see it and are like, oh my God, Esther Dean is in the movie. You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. But she is very quietly writing for Usher, Beyonce, Christina Aguilera, Kelly Rowland, Gucci Mane, Mary J. Blige, Britney Spears, Ludacris, yeah. Katy Perry. Just if you like look in the liner notes of an album by somebody who's on the radio, she's probably in there. Yeah. And she, nobody knows of her. Yeah. And that, that, that world is like so heavy in, in music industry. Like there's no money really to be made in selling records anymore. Yeah. But there's still like a ton of money for publishing, <laughs> like for oh. writing these songs and these hits for people. So you'll see names that repeat, like one of the kids I grew up with, Evan Bogart, who was uh, Neil Bogart's kid who had done Casablanca and The Village People and uh, The Kiss and, I mean, Donna Summers. He was a, he was Wait, a like, pioneer. Like the actor Humphrey Bogart? No, there might be some oh. weird relation, but this is oh, a guy no, named okay. Neil Bogart who was like, he created the 12-inch single in vinyl. Like, he was like a disco kind of guy. <laughs> and he had Evan and, and unfortunately he passed away when Evan was like two, so it's not like Evan had a real relationship with him. But yeah. we came up together. He had managed me rapping for one, at one point when I was like 16 or 17. And Evan... Um, 
was uh, instrumental in the early M&M process at Interscope. And he, he's a really great guy. And, and he had some ups and downs personally as far as addiction and things and was trying to find his way out after that. And he was a booking agent and he was, I guess, booking a, a girl band. And he wrote a song for them, I think, because he still had it in him to write songs. And he was a rapper when we were kids. And uh, he wrote SOS, and it was for this, like, girl group that didn't go. And so SOS is sitting around, and Rihanna takes it and makes it her first hit ever. And since then, he's went on to write, you know, for everyone. He wrote Halo for Beyonce, won a Grammy for that. And then now, you know, he basically is in tons of sessions, has his own record label, and he's went on to be a huge thing, but through publishing. Huh. Yeah, and he still makes a ton of money off of writing songs rather than, you know, being an artist or, or a manager, publishing, or, you know. It's yeah. it, it's it's a it's a very lucrative business still is what I'm saying. When and is it all just like a couple of prolific people? Like is it him and Esther Dean and like there's a couple like, other friends? I think there's they all know each other. They <laughs> yeah. I mean I know this from being around Evan. They all know each other and new names will pop up here and there. But yeah, it's a circle of I think 50 people that just got to jump in and out of people's rooms. Um, but there are names wow. of, of people like Ricky Reed, who who used to go under the name Wallpaper. He was a rapper and a singer. <laughs> uh, now he's writing all of like uh, tons of different flow writer songs. And and some are old artists. Some are, are people who've always just been writers. But yeah, there's like yeah. a 50-person group. And Esther's clearly on, on the higher uh, hierarchy of it. That's I mean, that's amazing to me that like music has an ecosystem like 100%, that. A hundred percent. I feel like the whole country doesn't know that there's like that layer in the hierarchy and the steps of songs hitting the radio. Yeah, like, there's a billboard near my house uh, on Sunset and it just says like the, it's a Spotify billboard yeah. and it says like the the names behind the music or something and it always puts up a, a writer or producer on that billboard and they've had huh. Ricky on there. I think they've had Benny Blanco who's a name on every song you like <laughs> uh, or at least it's on the radio. You know, there's just, there's a handful of people that write all the songs you hear. I mean, uh, the guy who had done all the Kesha stuff who, uh, oh, yeah. Dr. Luke, who's a problematic person, but he, uh, Max he, Martin, Max is Martin one. I mean, Max is uh, prolific. He's yeah. insane. Um, so those names pop up over and over. Yeah. Man. Is that billboard like just for us Hollywood people? Is that like, the I whole would thing? think so. I don't know. I think it's a special <laughs> thing they do on Spotify. I think they interview those people, then play their music. Oh, that's the okay. feeling I get from the billboard. I don't have Spotify, but I think that's what it is by looking at it. Like they do an interview with them and then they play their music and talk about the songs. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, I, yeah I, I'm glad. I'm glad it's not just like uh, like oh no, know, no class no. award or yearbook yeah. or something. It's like for the, for, like the for your consideration billboards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's only here. I don't think they put up the for your considerations in Albuquerque. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll yeah we'll footnote a bunch of those people because yeah that's just cool to me that there's a whole world of that. Yeah. Like because also we'll talk about some movie people and things like I think the average fan is a little more aware that like, oh, there's a whole set of Hollywood editors That's or true. like a whole set of, you know, That's but like true. music, they don't think of it. They don't know. No. And you think a lot of the singers write their own stuff. There's a guy, Pooh Bear, who just put out a record too, who is a Justin Bieber writer. Uh, and has Pooh done, Bear. Yeah. Has yeah. done a lot of stuff. And I haven't been able to listen to the full record yet, but a lot of these guys are putting out their own stuff now too. Oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you mentioned Pharrell, too. I feel like Kanye and Pharrell are maybe the two biggest behind-the-scenes people who then broke out. You yeah, know, well, Kanye never really anyway. wrote for other people that much. Pharrell did. Or producing, yeah. Yeah, yeah CeeLo yeah. was another problematic person, but he also um, wrote a ton of stuff. He wrote, uh, yeah. Don't You Wish Your Girlfriend Was Hot Like Me? He had wrote that. CeeLo wrote that. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, he, he, he was jumping in and out of <laughs> sessions as well. But yeah, 50 or the, like, they have like a circuit of, of people who write all the pop songs. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. It's trippy. Well, also, there's another circuit of studio musicians in the world. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people we can name, but one who is in that cracked article is Carol Kay. 
who was a female bass player hmm. who uh, played on in her career over 10,000 sessions. Yeah. Uh, because she, among other things, was a single mother of three kids. And so a way to uh, feed the kids and take care of the family was just play all the time. And she was the bassist on everything from uh, Richie Valens songs, Righteous Brothers, Simon and Garfunkel, The Beach Boys, Nancy Sinatra. Uh, the Doors didn't officially have a bassist. She was just the bassist on that most of the in. songs. She also did almost every TV theme huh, for geez. TV shows. Uh, Butch, uh, well, Butch Cassidy and the Sunnys Kids a movie, but Adam's Family, Brady Bunch, Hawaii Five O, The Wonder Woman Show, Mash, Love Boat, Hogan's Heroes, Mission Impossible, Cosby Show. Man, quite a studio uh, musician. Yeah, so she just low key was in everything for a couple of decades. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, there's like a, a handful of the we, we just had on Joaquin Cooter on our show who yeah, is a musician yeah. and his father Rye is kind of like the guy version of that a bit too. Like he was yeah. in with the Beatles and the Stones and he had done a bunch of studio musician stuff. When I was Hot Carl, I, we would have guys come in all the time and I was it, hearing how many sessions they do a week is nuts. <laughs> nuts. Like what's his name? Um, Scott Storch. Do you know his story? I know that name. Scott Storch is like this hip hop kind of like behind the Hollywood story kind of thing where like he was on top of the world and then kind of lost all his money. And yeah, uh, he's very talented, though. He was Dre's studio musician and then went out on yeah. his own. But all those Dr. Dre like dun, 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 dun. Dun 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 is him on the keyboards. That was that that was him playing all those sounds that became very and Timbaland too. Like he was just sort of known as the guy who made those keys happen. Yeah. Um so hip hop had a bunch of those dudes too, but that's I mean, those those thirty feet from stardom kind of like studio musician people are always like mind blowingly talented. Yeah, and just kind of in the background as far as the public knows, but yeah. out there. Yeah. Well and also and then looking at like uh, how scenes happen in general. You brought up something really interesting when we were prepping this, which is David Faustino. Yeah. From, uh, he's known as Bud Bundy on Married with Children. That's right. And he's also low key, like a key person in the fostering of West Coast rap. He really was. He's a pioneer. <laughs> it's he's amazing. A literal pioneer in hip hop. And that was when you asked me, like, who deserves more credit? David is one of the main guys I always say. And I actually helped him get, uh, when LA Weekly was a good newspaper yeah i got a cover for him based on me championing him and what he had oh, done that's awesome and so his yeah. thing is he uh you know got kind of thrust into fame as a kid was uh on the biggest show on tv right and um he his own personal interest was hip-hop which was unheard of at the time for a white kid i mean i, I literally i knew all 40 of us in la really that was <laughs> that were rhyming and and looked like we did and um he took his kind of influence and his popularity and, and put together a mainstream Sunset Boulevard hip-hop club called Ballistics, yeah. which had never happened. Sunset had never had hip-hop clubs before that night, you know, the, the first night of Ballistics. Was it was it like all hair metal until this point? Pretty was much, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was basically like the, the Sunset Strip. Absolutely. Uh, what, yeah. you knew, what you knew is the Sunset Strip. And so he was the first guy working with um, – the son of the guy who owns the Roxy and, and uh, they put together this night called ballistics and, and it became the go-to sort of um, I, I hate to say mainstream cause it wasn't, but mainstream in a sense that it wasn't just in an area uh, where it's sort of like off, off the map. This was an, the first on the map hip hop night. Also it catered to a lot of uh, white kids for the first time ever, which yeah. um at the time, he had NWA come perform at Ballistics, which is nuts. I mean, they played on Sunset Strip. Like, that's the same way that's that, awesome. yeah, the same way you hear about Guns N' Roses and Poison and, you know, whatever. That NWA came and played for David Faustino. And then you had names like 
you know, the greatest battle, one of the greatest battle rappers in Los Angeles, who's went on to become quite a terrible musician, was Will I Am, who went by Will One X <laughs> at the time, and he was an incredible battler. And Will would go up there every week and battle. He was sort of the in-house champion. He would battle Exhibit one night. Exhibit was like fifteen or sixteen. I mean, he, he would have people come through. You know, Scott Kahn, who who uh, now is a Hawaii like Five O. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Was in yeah. a rap group called the Hooligans with Alchemist, who's one of the best rap producers of all time. Uh, they were signed <laughs> to Cypress Hill under a group called Hooligans, and they would perform. And, and DJ AM, who would later go on to become, in my opinion, the greatest DJ of all time. A lot of less uh, credible names, but credible back then, like Crazy Town. Uh, Seth Shifty and Mazer had, had produced for Belba DeVoe at that point. And so you had names and stuff of people coming and going, and it was yeah. because of David's scene and because David had allowed sort of a, a new take on hip-hop. We were all loving it and loving every word and respecting it correctly, not co-opting a culture. And David was so good at finding that middle ground because he was famous, honestly. Um, and he still you know, loves hip-hop, and he's still sort of in the scene a bit. But I always try to champion when I can because he had such a – I went when it, when I was a kid with my cousin to ballistics and it was such like a – it was a changing moment for all of us. He was awesome. And, and the LA Weekly article is worth reading too. I had sent it to you. And yeah, it really shows like you it, like yeah. what he did. He was kind of a pretty amazing figure for West Coast hip hop. Well, it seems like he was working really, really hard on it on top of like shooting all of Married with Children and like he, doing a bunch of other stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he, he <laughs> saw a – like he saw sort of an obligation – because yeah. he was so into it to sort of push it further. Um, and they ended up putting him on the show as a rapper and sort of making fun of it, which he was fine with. Yeah, it wasn't. It was Grandmaster B. Yeah. And, and then like, he had like a, a hat. On yeah, it, it was just yeah. like stupid. But he yeah. was happy with it because it sort of allowed his own interest. And he was still a kid. But it was awesome. He had an all-ages club on Sunset Boulevard for hip-hop when, you know, I think the far side performed and DJ Mike Love, <laughs> who's a legend on the West Coast, and Rob One, who passed away, who was a absolute legend with Club Elements, which was a little more of a, a less sort of Sunset Boulevard club that went on around that time. I performed at a club when I was like 13, 14 that was kind of ripping off ballistics called Sh- uh, Sugar Shack on Vine. And so it just so it opened up a lot of the scene. And it, it was a, a really cool first move for like – Los Angeles hip hop. Trying to like cogitate exactly what it meant. Like as I read the article, I was like, oh, this is sort of the LA music equivalent of like getting a show onto Broadway or yeah. something. Like, yeah. Oh, now it has a, a storefront and a lo- and a physical and a location. Name. And a famous it, white name. Right, yeah. right. Uh, where it's uh, like, oh, now this is a thing. Absolutely. Yeah. We didn't create hip hop. West Coast, I mean, other than white people, I mean, West Coast didn't create hip hop. And so it was, it was kind of coming over here and we had NWA at sort of the forefront of it. Yeah. Um, and so we didn't know where it was, you know, we weren't New York. So we were kind of getting it secondhand and, and creating that scene here in ballistics and having people come out of it. Like, like even I remember meeting Opio from Souls of Mischief there that night and certain people um, were just kind of coming around and, and it really fostered uh, a very cool scene. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And then you would see like Brian Austin Green there or something. It's just like such a weird, <laughs> weird world. Right. I'm also I'm imagining Ed O'Neill in the crowd line. I know. Like, what is do his thing. Are you hiring? Because every business needs great people and a better way to find them. That's how you build your entire company. Why don't you use ZipRecruiter? Because they know there's a smarter way than just posting your job online. So they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. 
And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. So just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Support for today's show comes from Squarespace because, man, oh, man, oh, man, cracked fans, they just know a lot about stuff. Like, we're talking about kind of everything in culture today, and you're either keeping up or you're into some other thing or you're just awesome and you should have a website to show that. Squarespace is the way to build it. They have beautiful templates created by world-class designers that make it easy to take yourself and port it into an online version. You can customize everything about it. It will be optimized for mobile right out of the box because that's how everyone reads the internet now. We, we have analytics at the website. We can see people moving there, and your website will be ready for that move if it's a Squarespace site. You can also use Squarespace analytics to help you grow your site in real time. You can also just see like where people are visiting it from. Like it's neat to see somebody from across the world be like, hey, who is you? You know, you'll find out with them. There's also nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And if you do have a question, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. So why don't you head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cracked, offer code cracked. I talked about earlier like how, how there are these whole categories of person in an industry that people don't think about. And film editing is a thing. Yes. Uh, it's not uh, probably focused on as much as directing, even though it sometimes fixes it. Uh, but um, yeah. one uh, one person you brought up is Thelma Schoonmaker. Yeah, who growing up, I would like, that. W- I was such a Scorsese fanatic in high school and just trying to see everything from King of Comedy to to even when, you know, Casino first came in theaters and going to see it and stuff. I was just like obsessed with seeing everything I could. And the one name that was so prevalent other than Martin's in every one of those movies was her. And also a female editor, you know, that was like such a standout, like, oh my God, he has a female editor, which, you know, still is rare, sadly. Yeah. uh, But at the time was very rare. And so I really got into what she did and really started to read about her. And when I would read these sort of like Scorsese on Scorsese books, I would really get into the idea of what she was doing for him. And if you really get into it, and there's been a lot of sort of profiles on her, like she controls so much. And I don't think he works with her anymore, which is very odd. But During that time, she controlled so much of what happened. Like people that were sitting in were like, yeah, she controls it as much as he does. Um, And she's like instrumental in what he was doing. So all the Goodfellas stuff and all the things that he's become known for, he had the same editor each time and was very hands-on with her, but she was an auteur herself. So I always kind of figure her, she should be in the discussion when it's like, because you always hear Scorsese, Coppola, Spielberg, Lucas. You know, you always sort of hear the same four. But she was you know, just as instrumental for Scorsese, at least, while the other guys didn't really have a one editor they would work with. Yeah, um, well, yeah. And, he, and he's so famous for, uh, like, pace and a speed and yeah. a style, and a lot of that comes in the editing. Like, yeah. maybe he suggested some of it or, or came up with some of it, but she's doing it, too. Yeah, she's yeah. awesome. And and obviously music supervision for him was such a big deal, too. But Oh, um, yeah. And sure. I heard, yeah. I mean, now you can see from here on, like, the, all the music stuff he's done, clearly he had a, a big part in that. But editing, yeah, he was, uh, I don't know. I always wanted to look at, like, what else she did. 
Like, yeah. Um, well, also, and you mentioned like, oh, a female editor, that's rare. Like I was reading about her in advance of this and she had to break through that to even get to edit. Like she, Absolutely. she met him at NYU and they mm-hmm. worked together at NYU. And then apparently at the time, the editor's union had a pretty tight control over who got to do the editing at all. <laughs> And we're not into a woman doing it. So there's about 12 years where she just didn't get to do professional editing yeah. until Scorsese and lawyers got her onto Raging Bull. That's crazy. Yeah, which is nuts. Like there's a whole decade or so of her work kind of missing just because she was a woman and they and they were sexist. She is back with Scorsese. I think there was something weird that had happened I had read. But she is doing The Irishman, which is the uh, ne- oh, Netflix 2019. Movie. Yeah, he's doing. Yeah. But she also did that terrible movie called The Snowman. <laughs> Uh, which is terrible. Uh, But yeah, she did Wolf of Wall Street and Hugo and Shutter Island and Aviator and Gangs of New York. And I love bringing out the Dead's editing, which which isn't a great movie, but the editing is incredible. And she did that. But yeah, I'm I'm trying to see what she did outside of um, Scorsese and it's not much. Yeah. Well, she's not to blame for the Mr. Police meme about the snowman. No. That's somebody else. Also a bad movie. (laughs) It's just a bad, bad movie. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, she's clearly, her whole life has been Scorsese-centric, so... When she left him, she did the snowman, so she should stick around. <laughs> but yeah, but uh, seven Oscar nominations, three wins, and uh, crazy. and an incredible part. And in, like you say, if somebody tries to just come up with film directors off the top of their head, Scorsese's probably in like the first five of them. Yeah, easy. Yeah. She should be the first one you think of in editing. Well, and uh, also looking at other departments of things and things people are up to, I'm really into the Westmore family as a thing in Hollywood, they're an entire family that basically invented Hollywood makeup and really? then also continued to do it for generations. What's the name? Uh, Westmore. Huh. I mean, everybody knows what's his name. The guy who has the institution. What's his name? Oh, I don't know. Oh, come yeah. on. The horror guy, guys. Stan Winston. <laughs> oh, yeah. That we'll get into it. We okay. can get into him, too. All right. Yeah, all right, yeah. all right. The uh, sort of patriarch of the family was George Westmore. He was a British person. And he was, he's so old, he was Winston Churchill's barber at one point. Oh, wow. Uh, which is just a fun thing. Yeah. Um, but he founded the first uh, makeup department at a Hollywood studio in 1917. Hmm. He then had six sons, Monty, Perk, Ern, Wally, Bud, and Frank. Mm-hmm. And then from there, they had children, and basically everybody in the family worked in makeup. Oh, wow. Uh, so, like, his sons were doing makeup on Gone with the Wind. One of them was doing Rudolph Valentino's makeup in all his movies. Uh, and then George's grandson, Michael Westmore, won an Oscar for the movie Mask in 1985, not the Jim Carrey The Carrie Eric Stoltz one. film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then That makeup won. is very good. <laughs> right. He looks, uh, yeah, he looks like great. he does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he did makeup on Raging Bull, and he did, has won nine Emmys for the makeup on three different Star Trek franchises on TV. Jesus. Um, so they, they- It's like a dynasty. Yeah, it's yeah. like this, this whole craft that goes into everything that gets filmed for film or TV. There's been this one family handling a lot of it yeah. behind the scenes. They're yeah. the bush of politics to <laughs> make up. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Anytime a, a full family can dominate an entire industry, that is very impressive. My father was a car salesman. So I didn't. I was not given that opportunity. Although I guess oh, I could didn't. dominate car sales. Yeah, you didn't build a dynasty? Of... No, he could have. He could have. He's a very good salesman. <laughs> but no, no. Now I want just my family, my child, 
to dominate battle rap. That would be <laughs> Danielle and I should have seven children together, and all of them are battle rappers. <laughs> oh no, you're gonna fight the clan, the carp clan. Oh boy, they're ready to go. They can even call themselves a clan. Uh, well, I don't know there if that's go. gonna go over in hip hop, but sure, <laughs> absolutely. Well, and let's talk about Sam Winston too, because you bring him up, and he's yes. amazing. Yeah, uh, and he there's a lot of makeup, and it's more kind of creature oriented or borderline special effects. Um, he did the. Monsters in the movie The Thing. Yeah, but he all did. I care about is, wasn't he the thriller? Didn't he do Thriller? Oh, possibly. Hold on. I don't know I'll look sure. it up while you do the other ones. Go with the other ones. Uh, he also did uh, the Alien franchise. So he did those monsters. Then he did the Predator, because you got to do both sides of the fight. Yep. He did Edward Scissorhands. He did all the Terminators. And then he worked on the mechanical dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Because a lot of people forget that Jurassic Park, most of the dinosaur stuff is like a big mechanical one. And yeah. there's only a few CGI shots. Uh, he did do Thriller. Rad, yeah, great. It's the best. Yeah, yeah. As a kid, that was like changed my life. Watching oh, Michael sure. change to a zombie was like, this is the greatest. And all those zombies are so good. Yeah. They kind of hold up. And that element of it makes the video work and the video revolutionized music videos. Absolutely. So I, he also did that. It's weird that you hear that song like Thriller when it's on in Halloween and you're like, I can't believe, and I guess kids don't even know, but I can't believe as someone who was that age who like, you know, couldn't wait to see the video. Like, I can't believe that song exists without the video. Right. Like, what is that song about? It doesn't really make sense Yeah, it's like a hot night or something. I don't even understand what it could be unless it's him being chased by zombies, which was a John Landis video, I think. I think John Landis directed it, maybe. Because I I think you're right. That that video, they kind of just handpicked the best Hollywood people, which also speaks to how good Stan Winston was, because they were like, we get the best guy, and it's him, you know? I think he loved, if I'm remembering this right, I think he loved... American Werewolf in Paris. Yeah, John Landis directed it. Yeah. He loved American Werewolf in Paris, and that was what was his influence for Thriller. And then when it came time to make the video, he's like, well, let's just get the guy. Right. And then I think Landis brought in Stan Winston. That's so amazing. good. Yeah, so yeah. good. That song, too. Like, it, I, I remember hearing Monster Mash as a kid. Oh, yeah. What was, how's that and song? And being written? like, yeah. that, is this just like a, a comedy short or yeah. something? I don't get it. You and then know. Thriller, I was like, this is also some kind of novelty Yeah, it sounds like a Weird Al song. Bit. But the video made it very credible and Right, good. it made it, yeah, yeah it substantial. <laughs> yeah, it changed the music video forever, like you said. Yeah, and Vincent Price introduced yeah. to Generation. You can get, yeah, Vincent Price in an intro and an outro. Yeah. Get him. <laughs> get him. <laughs> Um, and uh, and also, uh, speaking of uh, Hollywood effects and creatures and stuff, uh, there's two guys here, Dennis Murin and Phil Tippett. Um, both of them were visual effects artists who worked on everything and then also kind of survived and pushed the transition to computers hmm. because they – Dennis Murin, his – First big job was all three original Star Wars movies. He wow. was basically broke, basically going to leave Hollywood, and then the first Star Wars came along. He did the first finish effects shot in the movie, which is the Death Star trench that they fly into, and then there's a cannon shooting at them. That's that's miniatures, right? Yeah, it was a lot of miniatures, yeah, yeah. and uh, a lot of like scene painting and Crazy. things like that. Uh, and so then he did other miniatures and practical effects and stuff for The Abyss and Terminator 2. And then, meanwhile, Phil Tippett was an animator and a creature designer who uh, did a lot of stop-motion stuff and also pioneered a technique called go-motion, which is where you put some blur in between the frames and so it looks a little smoother. And they used that for the Tauntauns in Empire Strikes Back. Uh, They used it on RoboCop, Indiana Jones, E.T. And then both guys were working on the first Jurassic Park and seeing all this, like, initial computer animation start to happen. And they were like... Oh, we're out of a job now. Yeah. Right? Because we're done. Now it's computers. We're yeah. screwed. And then they realized, no, instead of that, we'll just get good at this too. 
And so then they worked in like CG animation from there. Phil Tippett was a dinosaur supervisor on Jurassic Park no was his official job title, which has become a meme because then it's like, oh, he didn't supervise the dinosaurs closely <laughs> enough. They ate everyone. You know? Does it say that? It's in the it's credits. Credit? Oh, it's funny. you can look at the, we'll we'll link it's like a shot. It's in that that funky Jurassic Park font too. Yeah. But it's like dinosaur, dinosaur supervisor. supervisor. It's, <laughs> great. it's great. Uh and then he was a dinosaur consultant on Jurassic World. Uh and then Dennis Murren's still like like he consulted on Pixar's Wally. Like they both continued That's to find great. work in the computer version of this. That's great. And made all of our uh, imaginations. Yeah, I'm sure Spielberg, <laughs> yeah, was like tap that guy even when his industry became obsolete. I'm sure Spielberg was like, that guy's a master. Bring him in if he thinks he knows computers. Right. And then they made a whole new industry out of it, I'm sure. Yeah, they and they have like twice sort of invented jobs for themselves because Dennis Murren did an interview where he said that in the two years before Star Wars came along, he made a total of a little over $2,000 working in visual effects. Unbelievable. Because there was just no work to do. Yeah. Like, it didn't exist. And so then Star Wars blew up visual practical yeah. effects, and they were like, oh, now we have work all the time. That's so cool. And then they transitioned again with computers. Fun. So it's been like two guys making all movies. <laughs> and now they're still around. And they're still around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nice. yeah. They're, they're like semi-retired apparently, but yeah. they both uh, hang out in the Bay Area. Yeah, if they don't don't have mansions, that's a super bummer. I'm sure they do. They have to be loaded. I think so, yeah. Yeah, Good, good. They deserve to be loaded. It's great. Yeah. Everything worked out. Yeah. You'd brought up a a director who is worth talking about, which is Joe Dante. Yeah, who's just the greatest. Because, like, people, uh, especially Spielberg and Lucas, people think of those guys for those types of movies. Yeah. And he's another guy who does kind of that kind of thing. But but it's his own flavor. I love it. He is just like a guy who should be brought up a lot more. He's not, I mean, also, he, like, his tone for being that, like, late 80s, early 90s comedy. Like, I just love that tone. I think he could have maybe been given more opportunities as well. I'm not 100% sure why it kind of fizzled for him a bit. But, like, this run of movies is so funny to me. Like, Piranha, which is super fun. Um, I don't know why he's uncredited on Rock and Roll High School, but I'd always known he was the director of it, but I don't don't know why he ended up being uncredited. Okay. The Howling is super fun. Uh, He did the segment of the cursed Twilight Zone movie, but then in 84 he made his – one of his masterpieces – well, it probably is masterpiece to everyone other than me, which was Gremlins. Right. Explorers is great, which he did as well in 85, a movie not enough people have seen. He made Inner Space, which is great. (laughs) Uh, He made Amazon Women on the Moon, which was kind of like a spiritual sequel to Kentucky Fried Movie, which I loved. And then my favorite movie in 89, which is The Burbs, which I love more than anything. Oh, okay. Uh, He had directed that. And then Gremlins 2, which is a very fun sequel that doesn't get the credit it's due uh he had done that he did a terrible movie with john goodman called matinee and then that sort of threw him i think into some weird stuff like small soldiers and the looney tunes movie with steve martin which is not good um and then since then he's done a lot of just television and then i think yeah let's see what this is he did something called nightmare cinema which i'm still not sure what it is but it has mickey rourke in it i guess he's involved in maybe a segment of it's like a horror segment genre movie but he doesn't really do anything anymore but burbs is my favorite movie and he does a lot of stuff here in la he'll do a lot of q a's he was doing a weird thing i think at the maybe at the new bev or at the new art or something where he would like come one night a year and play like treasures that he finds he collects i think treasures. Old, i think he collects old film reels <laughs> so i think he edits them together and you can come see them every year i mean he's just sort of like a film dude and just doesn't get the credit he deserves because all of those movies are like 
like as you described them, it was like this one's so funny, this yeah. one's so funny, and like they are funny, and also there's enormous either effects yeah. or creatures or concepts happening. Every he time. did good popcorn fare. He made good popcorn movies, and that tone I love from the '80s and '90s, which is like Dragnet and Nothing But Trouble, and these sort of like <laughs> weird, you know, Secret to My Success and Funny Farm. There's you know, there's so many of these movies that Great Outdoors that are like they're funny, but they're not like Bleh! you're not like you know laughing out at every <laughs> joke. But like it's just a cool atmospheric film, and Joe Dante made those really well. And Gremlins hit, you know, that was like a big smash for him. Yeah, but they're all really good. Well, and I think there's like an undercurrent of people super loving, especially I remember Key and Peele did that Gremlins oh, 2 yeah. sketch. Yeah, it's, it has a nice a nice swell now. Yeah. yeah, and people and people were like, God, I love Gremlins 2. And I was like, there's a second one? But yeah. Because like, it's a whole thing. There's it's a, a whole like cult modern strange cult. Yeah, it's yeah. got because it, it has this very odd middle scene where the film breaks down and <laughs> there's like very <laughs> weird Gremlins. It's all very funny, but it's a really good sequel. It's fun. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and he should be better known. That's true. Influence. Speaking of incredibly well-known movies, there are a pair of people who've designed all the superheroes, basically. Oh, really? For, like, uh, all the ones we're watching? Yeah, yeah. So we've got um, – this is from – it's called Six Geniuses Behind Classic Movies Who Deserve More Credit by David Christopher Bell. And uh, one of the people is named Ryan Minerding. And Ryan Minerding is not well-known, but he's Marvel Studios' head of visual development. That's so cool. So What a job. Yeah, every event, and he's been doing it since the first Iron Man movie with Downey. Nice. So, Where, what was his history before that? He was uh, he was like just I think a character illustrator and kind of worked in because it's sort of like um, Murren and Tippett where he, it's kind of an invented job. There wasn't quite a, what a gig. thing for that yet. But he's designed since the first Iron Man pretty much every adaptation of here is a person on a comic book page. Yeah. Here's he sketches him out. I'm sure. Yeah, a yeah. lot of a lot of sketching. He sketched all of the Captain America outfits that we've had for Chris yeah. Evans, and uh, so he's doing all of Marvel. Just this guy, so cool. Uh, and the biggest movie in the world just had them. It was great. Yeah, I'm gonna catch up. I have never seen Civil War. I'm gonna watch that this this week. My fiance's out of town, so I'm gonna watch that. Oh, she actually yeah. loves Civil War, so I'm just doing it because she's already seen it. And then yeah, it's uh, pretty good. Yeah. And then catch yeah. up to the new one. Well, and then uh, and so what about all the DC superheroes, Alex? Uh, there's someone named Lindy Hemming. And uh, she did the oh, costume. Don't tell me she did the Joker. Uh, the good one. She, so Lindy Not Hemming the did the. Lowe. Yeah, Lindy Hemming did the costumes on the Nolan Batman's. Okay. And did a very good job there. Yeah. And has also done Wonder Woman's costume. So she's specifically done the DC movies that like humans like. Yes. You know, like yeah. the ones that were uh, good. Yeah. Well, Hot Topic designed the Jared Leto Joker. Right. The right. Franchise. <laughs> yeah. The actual store did it. At uh, our local mall. Yeah. They really uh, worked. Was well, it Topanga Plaza in Woodland Hills? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they just brought in Leto, and they said, here's what we want you to look like, and then he looked like a vape pen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Lindy Hemming did all of the costumes in James Bond movies since Pierce Brosnan, so all those. Those look very good. Very cool. Uh, and also did the costumes in Paddington, oh, the uh, greatest the great, hero of our time. What a, what a movie those are. Yeah. Those are real good. Yeah. Let's go all the way into wrestling. Okay. All the way over to, you'd mentioned Jake the Snake Roberts. That's right. Jake the Snake Roberts. Wrestler. That's right. 80s, 90s guy mostly 80s, uh, was a pro wrestler at the WWF at the time, now WWE. Right. And he, it's weird. Like when the history of wrestling is always brought up, it's Andre the Giant, Hulk Hogan, you know, Ultimate Warrior, Randy Macho Man Savage. These names are the ones that kind of roll off the tongue. But Jake the Snake Roberts was the greatest. He was unbelievable. And and it wasn't just that he was like a good physical wrestler because he wasn't. He was just, he was serviceable. Yeah. He was good in the ring. But what he created and what came after him is this like psychological warfare, which now is kind of like a cool thing in wrestling to tell a story and to do more than just be like good guy, bad guy, 
cool. guy gets beat up and then here's his comeback and then he wins. Jake the Snake looked at it as like a therapist. He would look at these things as like what makes this town hate me if he was a bad guy. Like what <laughs> what is it that I, you know, he, he is, his interviews weren't just like, I'm going to get you on Sunday and blah, blah, blah. His interviews were like, I know that when you grew up, your parents never loved you. <laughs> like he was a different type of guy. And he fell into like crazy addiction problems, which it, the, the entire documentary Beyond the Mat is basically about him almost. It's like three segments, but he's the most compelling. And he almost killed himself through drugs and alcohol. Um, and then recently, I think, has been sober for a couple of years. It's great. And even wrestlers who... I, I'd have to figure out if they're using him, but I always hear maybe some wrestlers are meeting up with him to like talk about the psychology of wrestling and talk about the things that are above and beyond just like being buff or he was never huge. You know, he carried around a snake and it was just sort of like, uh, he was the thinking man's wrestler. And now you have a lot of those, you know, those are kind of the gray areas where Stone Cold Steve Austin lives. And, you know, all these names that have come after him is, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Like Jake, the snake was the first cool bad guy. Like he was doing bad things, but you were like, that guy's awesome. You know? And, and that was sort of, he was the first guy to do that. And so it, it's, great. it's someone that should just be brought up more in sort of the hall of fame of wrestlers for pop culture. Yeah. Especially if his, if he wasn't that great, technically it almost emphasizes how good he was at everything else. Yeah. He and was like good. Innovating with. Yeah. He was good. Story. Yeah. He was good. He was a great personality and and he survived. You know, I think most people had him written off as dead in the last few years, but he uh I know he got super into yoga and and now he's I think he's very healthy now. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of come into wrestling as a grown person. Yeah, a lot of people have. Were you into it as a a kid or early on? Yeah. Yeah. I was super into it in the my youth, my in the eighties, eighty six, I think is when I started watching. My mom and dad had taken me to a sports arena event with Adrian Adonis and Hulk Hogan as the main event. And then I, that was my first writer's room. So I wrote Monday Night Raw in 2005. No way. Yeah, yeah. And that was the first time I'd ever been in a writer's room. I, I lasted seven months and I quit. It was not oh. for me. The traveling was a disaster <laughs> nightmare. But yeah, I mean, I don't, oh. I don't watch as much as I used to. I went to WrestleMania. I go with all my high school friends. But I read all the results. So I like know all the results of what's happening. And if there's a new character, I'll usually look that up and try to see the video and stuff. But yeah, once I saw the sausage get made, I kind of got out of it a bit. Well, cause, yeah, because I don't know if everybody knows there is a Hollywood-style writer's room behind wrestling. I didn't nice. know. Were you guys, like, traveling arena to arena with Yeah, them? yeah. There's That's a different amazing. style now. Now I heard that you can stay in Stamford, Connecticut, which is where you're out of. But yeah. we were at every every city, yeah. I, yeah, I sort of assumed they were just in one room here, and they... No, we've ne- they've never had LA. They, <laughs> they should. Wow. They should. It should be a satellite room, because, like, who cares? But we also <laughs> produced on the road, so, like, all the segments were broken up into the writers to produce. And I didn't even sure. really watch wrestling until a few years ago when I started going to PWG events here in LA and really falling in love with the indie wrestling scene. I hear those are amazing. Oh, they're the best. Yeah. What, I mean, what does PWG stand for? Uh, Pro Wrestling Gorilla, Pro which is spelled G-U-E, yeah. but the logo's a gorilla. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they everyone who's in WWE now had been kind of a superstar in in uh, PWG over the last few years. So it's been a bit ransacked. WWE's kind of taken all their stars from them. Yeah. Um, but there's a bunch of guys there right now, like this guy Walter and um, Joey Janela, and uh, there's some other kind of new crop dudes that look awesome. Brody cool. King. Uh, but like guys who will be in the WWE pretty soon, but worth watching now. Yeah, yeah. But I love the indie scene. That was that was what got me liking uh, wrestling again. 
And like getting into it later in life, I have mostly realized, especially because it's been after I started doing comedy, that mm-hmm. I realized like, oh, it's like a show. Yeah. It's, like, it's not, it was presented to me as a sport as a kid. And I was like, no, nah, I have baseball and soccer. I'm fine. Yeah. But, no, uh, yeah. It's, 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 but it's, it's a show. It's all sort of pageantry yeah. and humor. And especially the guys at PWG, they're all, it's almost like a UCB event, you know, like as far as how funny <laughs> yeah. they are. And, and Kevin Steen, who's now Kevin Owens in the WWE, and he had come out of, uh, oh. out of PWG and, and Adam Cole and, El Generico, who's now become Sami Zayn, to some great guys, Alistair Black, who is now, that's a WWE name, but when he was at PWG, was Tommy End, Cassius oh, okay. Ono was Chris Hero. These are all guys who now have moved on. Uh, Ricochet, who was probably one of the best wrestlers I've ever seen, is now at WWE. But at all, in Reseda, it was just sort of like a, I mean, I'm sure so many podcasts have talked to Ron Funches about it and such, but we all go, <laughs> we all, it, you'll go there and see a lot of Earwolf there, but the, 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 cool. uh, yeah. the Nick Weiger and Mike Mitchell now seem to go to every event, which is very fun. Um, yeah, I heard about it from them. Yeah, it's yeah like, it seems they, great. They yeah. love it. I've been going for a very long time and love it, and it's it's still fun. Culturally, now we're just getting to a spot where the wider country is like truly realizing, like, oh, wrestling is like a story driven, interesting thing narratively. You yeah. know? and and it seems like Jake the Snake was doing that decades before everybody Absolutely. else caught up. He was know? the king of it, and that's yeah. that's. I mean, a lot wrestling fans know him as an innovator, but he should be more in the discussion of sort of the mainstream pop culture uh, aspect to early wrestling. If we want to look over at comics, we, we just talked about people turning comic book characters into into uh, movies a little bit before. But uh, you mentioned Mike Allred. Oh, who I love. As somebody who is a comic book artist and writer. He's doing everything. Yeah, he's done yeah. everything. He's a bit complex because so <laughs> okay. much of his career has been evolved in the Church of Mormon because he is Mormon and, oh. and like depict. he did a whole comic book. But that's not what I'm getting you up on. What I am telling you <laughs> okay. you should be into and should be more mainstream is is Madman, who, you know, is a great comic that he created uh, and wrote and drew. And then Marvel caught on to him and gave him X-Force. And, oh, great. And he uh, – and that's, and that's kind of an experimental X-Men, right? Oh, it's like the it's greatest. The, it's the young, new – Yeah, what the he, PWG of exactly. X-Men. Exactly. Yeah. And he did – he went full <laughs> PWG. He, he killed off X-Force in the first book, started it over again as sort of a reality show. This cool. is like 15 years ago he did this, and, and he created Ecstatics, which was the new name for X-Force, and I love that run. They have an omnibus out now. I think you can get it for like 50 bucks. It's every uh, issue he did. Nothing's really stuck with hmm. the, with it, I think you might see a little of it in Daredevil. I mean, in um, Deadpool, but it's really an awesome run and weird. And and he really law. Lo- what it was is, it was an always evolving team. Cool. Ecstatics was always looking for ratings and such. And what ended up happening is he had this idea for a character named Dead Girl in the group who can summons dead, you know, anyone from the dead. And for the team, when they had an opening, she decided for marketing it would be a good idea to maybe bring a celebrity back. And so they added Princess Di to the team. And it's an amazing idea, but like parent groups and stuff freaked out. And so they ended up having to change the name, change the hair color and do all these things by the time it came out. And it, it just put a weird stench on the book. Uh, and so it <laughs> so they couldn't a, go through with it. They, they couldn't they, be like, no, you oh. knew who it was though, but no, it wasn't. I mean, in the original, it was princess Di. They were, it was just her. And oh, then they right. ended up changing the hair color and all these things and changing the name, but it's still a great run. And it, it kind of went downhill from there, but it's, it's really good. And it, there's an omnibus. Like I said, you could just get into it tomorrow. That's crazy. Yeah. It was a great idea, and I was obsessed with it, and then they had to change it up. But he's awesome, and he uh, just did one of the action comics 
thousand, you know, episode one thousand or issue one thousand. He just did one of the covers and stuff. Oh. He's still around, so he's huge. Yeah, cool. He's awesome, and he, he did a. There's that show on um, iZombie. Oh. is him as well. Oh, which like is now he wrote like a that TV comic. show. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's on the CW. Yeah, yeah. it's a whole. So show. that's his as well. He's yeah. awesome. <laughs> also Mormon. <laughs> yeah. Well, that it's <laughs> <laughs> just a small detail, but he did do a comic book for the book of like for Mormons and stuff. He's he was very. Um, I don't know if he's still in it, but he was very active for a while. When you said, like, I'm not here to get you up on Mormonism, like, if somebody came on the show to, like, in a very roundabout way yeah. convert me to Mormonism, I would well, just also, be impressed. Yeah. That would be Also, great. like, yeah. uh, stress tests should be more in pop culture. Uh, <laughs> I know that I have an audit system that I'd love to get you up on. Right. We should get up off uh, caffeine. You yeah, know, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And maybe, um, you know, like, uh, psychiatric drugs. And maybe <laughs> right, no, maybe no, no. you should get up on Xenu <laughs> to start realizing what I'm doing. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Jensen Karp for having a deeper knowledge of rap than I will probably ever have and being just like a font of wisdom and fun. Really, really glad he could make the time and be part of the show. And I'm really glad you can check out our food notes. You will find all the artists we celebrated and put to the forefront this week. Also some links about Kenna. Kenna is a musician and also an activist that we didn't quite have time to get to this week. And I hope you'll check him out. He is so good at music. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a whole chunk of a book trying to figure out why he wasn't a major hit and an iconic artist. And please, please check out the links for Jensen Karp's everything. You will find his podcast, Get Up On This. You'll find his memoir, Kanye West Owes Me $300. And you'll also find info about his TBS TV show, Drop the Mic. You can catch it Sundays at 10.30, 9.30 Central on TBS. And you know what else you can catch? Our next live episode of the Cracked Podcast. It is at UCB Sunset this Saturday, May 12th. It's a show all about bizarre secrets of the foods we eat every day with my very special guests, Ian Abramson, Hallie Cantor, and Brody Reed. They're all hilarious, and I can't wait to talk to them about creepy stuff about wine and cheese and uh, some other foods that don't pair. Tickets on sale now at sunset.ucbtheater.com. That's theater with an R-E. And we've got a link to it in our food notes. And as far as this episode goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Ryan Connor and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing that uh, I don't follow someone on Twitter on anymore. You know who I'm talking about. You can find my Twitter account at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.